0: Today, I'm continuing to talk about the effect of praise. Most people do not understand how praise, how beneficial it is to you, how it changes your attitude, your focus. It makes you focus on the Lord if you just determine that you are going to praise God regardless of what's going on. And that makes your faith abound. And it'll actually cause you to go through your problems easier, quicker, quicker, You will see more manifestation of the power of God. It is super beneficial to you. Now, today I want to start talking about how praise affects the devil. And uh, there's a lot of things I could say about this. Some people don't realize there is a devil. They think that everything that happens to you is just physical. Like, for instance, with sickness, there's many, many people that believe that all sickness is just some kind of a physical, organic It's a response to just natural stuff. But if you read the New Testament, Jesus cast demons out of people to heal blindness, deafness, lameness, uh, curvature of the spine. And there was just a lot of things. I'm not saying that everything that happens to us is demonic, but a lot of it is demonic. And there are attacks from the devil. And we have an enemy John chapter 10, verse 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And the thief there is talking about Satan. Satan is out to steal, kill, and to destroy your life. There's a lot of things that happen that are not just physical. They are spiritual in origin. And we have an enemy that's out to destroy us. And this is something that some people don't realize... But praise is a weapon against the devil. Satan cannot stand praise. He hates praise. And when a person is praising God in a pure heart, it says over in Psalms chapter 22 that God inhabits the praises of His people. When you are praising God, there is a physical manifest presence of God that just drives the devil away. It is strength. It's power. Look at these passages of Scripture in Matthew chapter 21. This is when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem during His last week of His earthly ministry. And these wonderful miracles had been happening. People were healed and things. And it says in Matthew chapter 21 and in verse 15, it says, And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were sore displeased. You know, before I get into my main point I want to make here, let me just say, people who don't really love God and people who aren't committed to God, they hate praise. They hate it. They do not relate to it. They want all of the praise to be going towards them. They don't want to humble themselves and acknowledge God as the source of everything. But they want uh, everything to be directed towards them. And this is what these chief priests were doing. They, They wanted the acclaim of man. They were the ones that were in the position of leadership in the religious community. And they hated Jesus receiving praise and worship from these people. And so in verse 16, and here's what these scribes and Pharisees uh, said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never, never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise? Now, this is a quotation from Psalms chapter 8 and verse 2. Let me turn over here and read Psalms chapter 8, verse 2 to you. And there's a couple of words in here that Jesus changed. And of course, He didn't violate what was said. It was more of like a commentary upon what was said. And so by putting these two things together, you get a greater impact of what's being said. In Psalms chapter 8, verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all of the earth, who has set Thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings Thou hast, ord- hast Thou ordained strength because of Thine enemies, Thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. So compare that Psalms 8:2 with how Jesus spoke it. Here in Psalms 8:2 it says, "You have ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger." Over in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus quoted that, he says, "Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise." So Jesus changed ordained strength to perfected praise and again there is no contradiction between this but more it's more of a commentary and so by putting these together you can say this that praise is strength you know in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 Nehemiah went back and was rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and they read the uh, scriptures To the people. And when the people heard the scriptures and what they were supposed to be doing and how they were supposed to be living, and they saw how far short they had fallen of this, then they began to cry and weep and lift up their voice to God. And Nehemiah got up and told them a number of things, but one of the things he said in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, he says, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what he was telling them is, today is not a day of mourning, but it's a day of rejoicing. The fact that we have now come back to realizing what God expected and God had revealed His Word. And he was telling them, rejoice. You know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy strengthens you. But joy, praise, and worship is also strength against the enemy. Over in Psalms chapter 8 verse 2, it says, Thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. Did you know when you operate in praise, it just stops Satan in his tracks. Satan cannot stand God being praised. Now the scripture doesn't give all of the, the, you know, the logic behind this, but here's the way that I see it. Uh, If you read over in Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about Lucifer and how that he said, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above the stars of the heavens. Satan's transgression against God wasn't that he hated God. He envied God. He wanted the worship and the praise and the glory that went to God. and Satan literally tried to overthrow God and assume that position. And so when we praise God, you know what we are doing? We are giving God the one thing that Satan always wanted and can never get. And it just is like putting salt in an open wound. He hates it. He hates it. He wants the glory that goes to God. And he will do anything to divert your attention away from glorifying God. You put that together with Psalms chapter 22, and I think it's verse 3 where it says but thou art holy, O Lord, that inhabits the praises of Israel. Not only does praise and glory, when we give it to God, bother the devil, but it makes God manifest Himself. He inhabits the praises of His people. So it draws the power and the anointing of God, and it drives away the devil. Man, that's a double whammy. That's a, that's a two-pronged thing that is so powerful in our life. And I personally believe that the reason Satan is so adverse to worship and praise towards God is because it's just a reminder to him of what he never has been able to get. He wants it, but he can't get it. He'll never get it. And he will do anything. You know, again, I know some of you probably won't like this. I don't mean this bad. I'm not trying to be critical of anybody. I'm just telling you that this is a conviction I have that I believe around holidays like Christmas and stuff that one of the reasons that we have the fat man in the red suit, the reason that we have the Easter bunny, the reason that we have Halloween and all of the things associated with that, all of those things were originally godly holidays. And Satan has raised up things to try and take our praise and our worship away from God and put it on on a, on a, a rabbit that lays eggs which you know, I don't even know how all of this stuff even came to pass. It doesn't make sense. But we get into more of the Easter things. We get into the Christmas things, the Santa Claus and all of this stuff more than we do the worship of the Lord. I am not saying that if you do something with an Easter bunny with Santa Claus or dress up at Halloween that you're of the devil and stuff like that. But I do believe that these alternative things around those holidays are things that Satan has drawn people's attention to, has empowered them to to, to lessen the amount of praise and worship that goes to God. Originally, Halloween was a godly holiday. It's The word means hallowed evening. It was the evening before All Saints Days where you went back and remembered the godly people and the contributions that they had made, and it was a hallowed evening. And of course, Satan has come in and put in witches and goblins and people getting more excited about it and getting candy and stuff like that. And whether it originated with the devil, now that one is pretty obvious with all of the demonic stuff associated with it, but whether it originated with him or if he's just co opted it, you know, and, and used it to divert people's attention away from what it was meant to be. Nonetheless, I believe Satan uses things like that because he can't stand to see people giving glory to God, praising God for these saints. Of course, Easter was the uh, time set aside to remember the resurrection of Jesus. And instead of worshiping Him and putting all of our worship on Him, people get into Easter egg hunts and all of the other things. The fancy clothes, dressing up on Sunday and going to church, which... There's nothing wrong with any of those things in their place, but if that's what Easter has become to you is a day to show off your finery and all of the special things and to have an Easter egg hunt, and if that is more exciting to you than the resurrection of Jesus, then I believe that that shows how Satan is doing everything he can to take people's attention away from God. Of course, Christmas is meant to celebrate God with us and God coming and redeeming us and talking about everything associated with Jesus. And yet to many people, it's all about presence, about a fat man in a red suit who's supposed to be able to cover the whole world in one night and dispense toys to all of these people. And again, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not against anybody. If you do all that stuff, power to you. I don't care, but I am saying that Satan, I believe, will do anything, he, whether he's caused these things or whether he just uses it, he uses it to divert people's attention away from glorifying and praising God. And I know many of you think, well, I'm extreme on this. But I tell you, I, I know from Scripture that Satan is an egomaniac. Satan wants all of the glory and all of the attention for himself. He cannot stand to see God worshipped. Man, there's examples in Scripture. Elisha was called on by the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And they were in a situation where they had gone through the desert trying to come around and surprise the king of Edom and the king of Moab. And because of it, they got out there in the desert. They ran out of water. It looked like they were going to die And they were ready to just literally lay down and die. They didn't think that they could survive. But uh, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he says, well, isn't there a a prophet of God here that we can call on? And so they called on Elisha. And Elisha came and he began to uh, praise God. He called for a minstrel. And as he worshiped the Lord, the anointing of God, descended upon him and he began to prophesy and he told the people to dig ditches in the desert and they dug ditches and then they went to bed that night and in the morning water just came and filled up all of these ditches and when the enemy came up over the hill and they saw this the sun was rising it reflected that red light in these pools of water they were not expecting water in the desert they had no idea that they had dug ditches and that they would have these pools of water. And so when they saw all of this red reflecting, they thought it was blood. They thought that the king of Israel and the king of Judah had fought each other and killed each other. And so they just ran into the midst uh, thinking that all they were going to do was pick up the spoil. And the Israelites rose up and defeated their enemies and they had their water, their need for water supplied, but they also defeated the enemy. And anyway, all of that came because a minstrel began to pray, play, and worship God. And as they praised God, the anointing of God came, and I, it just drove the devil away. Praise is strength to stop Satan in his tracks. And I'm telling you, if you are under an attack, one of the greatest things you can do is begin to praise God. And... Like I said, Satan is an egomaniac. When you start praising God, he can't stand it. He can't stand God getting the glory. And it just literally drives him away. I don't know if you've been around somebody who just thinks that they're awesome. And I mean, it's all about them. They can't talk about anybody else. If somebody says that they did something, well, they're going to interrupt and try and show you that they've done it better. That it, they just try and always be the center of attention. And if you get around somebody like that and if you start giving somebody else attention and you start honoring them, this person will either try and usurp that position and if they cannot gain the upper hand, that person will just leave. They cannot stand to see other people get credit for anything. Well, Satan is like that on steroids, I mean, it's a hundred times. He is an egomaniac, and when you go to worshiping and praising God, he cannot stand it. Boy, if there was no other benefit to praise but that one thing right there, that would be enough reason to praise God is just to aggravate the devil, just to punish the devil, just to drive him crazy. Man, for all of the problems, all of the things that he's done to you and your family and other people, if there was no other reason but to praise God, But to just give the devil a headache, that would be well worth it right there. But this says that praise is strength to still the enemy and the avenger. Praise will stop Satan in his tracks. A person who praises God, in a sense, it's like you're putting a force field around you. It's like you are having the Lord go before and behind you. And when you just live a life of praise and thanksgiving and you are giving honor to God... Satan just can't gain an inroad into you. Did you know before Satan gained access to Adam and Eve, you can turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and read this. The first thing he had to do was make them discontent with what they already had. And think about this. They were living in the Garden of Eden. They were in paradise. Everything was perfect. The climate was perfect. There was no problems. They had all of the food. They had everything. There was nothing wrong. They lived in perfection and yet a talking snake made them think that they were missing out on something. They had to get unthankful. They had to quit focusing on what they had. You know, I've often used this as an example. I don't know how many trees there were in the Garden of Eden, but let's just say for reference sake that there were 10,000 trees and the Lord told them only to not eat of one tree, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If the devil would have come to them and have said, Has God said that you could only eat of 9,999 of these trees? If he would have presented that temptation to them in that light, it would have diffused the temptation because it would have been a reminder, a mention of the fact that there were still 9,999 trees that God had allowed them to eat of. But that's not to see how the devil approached them. He didn't mention all of the good things God had given them. He says, can you not eat of this one tree? He pointed out the one thing in the universe that God told them not to do. They could do anything. They could go anywhere. They had all of these advantages, but Satan just focused their attention on the one thing that they didn't have. And I tell you, this is the way that it still is today. People are looking at what they don't have. They aren't thankful for what they do have. They aren't focused on how good things are. I hear Christians all the time. I mean committed Christians, turned on Christians, people that love God. They are looking at our nation and how ungodly it's become. And I guarantee you, it has become ungodly in a lot of ways. And it is not the way that it started out being. And there is reason to be concerned. I do not have my head in the sand. But I hear Christians all of the time just so bummed out and so discouraged over this that, I mean, they're just ready to give up. I've actually heard some talk about that they're going to leave and go to some other country. They're going to flee the United States. AND AGAIN, I ACKNOWLEDGE THAT WE'VE GOT PROBLEMS, BUT LOOK AT PAUL. PAUL LIVED UNDER A GOVERNMENT WHERE THE GUY WHO WAS IN CHARGE PROCLAIMED HIMSELF TO BE GOD. NERO WAS AN ABSOLUTE LUNATIC. HE FIDDLED AND PLAYED HIS FIDDLE WHILE ROME BURNED AND BLAMED THE CHRISTIANS FOR IT. THEY HAD TERRIBLE, TERRIBLE CORRUPTION AND THINGS. I MEAN, IF YOU COMPARE OUR SITUATION TODAY to the situation that Paul was in, I mean, we are in a wonderful position compared to them. And so am I saying that we should just be satisfied with all of our imperfections and and ignore it? No, we need to pray and we need to try and get our nation back on a godly foundation. I'm not denying all of that. But I'm saying you can always go and say, thank you, Father, that it's as good as it is. And even though Paul lived in this terrible government situation, Paul praised God. He prayed for the leaders and those that were in authority. And Paul rejoiced even when he was in prison. Paul was able to look on the good things. And I guarantee you, relative to us, he didn't have very many good things. But look at him. He was was positive and because of it, he changed the known world that he lived in. And here we are 2,000 years later still being influenced by the Apostle Paul and the scriptures that he left behind. I'm saying that as bad as things are, it could be worse. We could be living in some place where, you know, the Muslims were ruling and dominant and Sharia law was dominant. Somebody's immediately think, well, we're headed that way. Well, <laughs> we're headed that way. And I'm saying, do something about it and pray and believe God and get involved and participate. But it's not that way yet. Praise God for how good it is. And when you start focusing on the good, it literally stops Satan in his tracks. Satan only operates through griping and complaining. Again, I go back to Adam and Eve. If he hadn't have gotten Adam and Eve's attention off of all of the good things that they had and put their attention on the one thing that God told them not to do, he could not have gotten them into temptation and into sin and rebellion against God. Before you can get into sin, you've got to become a griper and a complainer. You've got to be dissatisfied. Did you know when it comes to like committing adultery... If you were totally satisfied with your mate, you would never go commit adultery. And somebody says, well, that's the problem. My mate's just not very satisfied. Well, it's probably the fact that you just are looking at all of the negatives instead of the positives. I gave that example of a pastor who couldn't find anything good about his wife. And God told him to just spend two weeks thanking God for every good thing in his wife. And at the end of two weeks after he focused on that, He was flat of his face, praising God that his wife was such a godly woman. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if you would just start being thankful for what you do have, if you would praise God for what you do have and operate in thanksgiving and praise, it changes your heart, it changes your focus, it makes faith abound, it does all kinds of good things for you, but it also just stops the devil in his tracks. And so praise strengthens us. It defeats the devil. That is an important piece of information. If you're going through a hard time, you need to praise God, not only for your own heart's sake to change your focus, to make your faith arise, but also just to torment the devil. He, he loves to see you get down in the dumps and gripe and complain and talk about how bad things are. And he cannot understand it when you start getting praise to God. So let me give you an illustration of this. Out of Acts chapter 16, this is when Paul and Silas had gone over into Macedonia. The first place in Macedonia that they went was Philippi. And he had people that were receiving the gospel. And matter of fact, they were turning people away from the worship of of Diana and... um, and all of these other demon gods, specifically in this 16th chapter, there was a demon-possessed woman that people had as a slave, and they used her to you know, do fortune-telling and stuff like this. And Paul cast the demon out of her. And when they did, they began to lose money. And so they drew him before the magistrates and all of these things. And it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 22, and the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now I need to remind you that this isn't a prison like what we have today. I've gone into many of our prisons and ministered to people and I and I go into these prison cells and they have flat screen TVs and they have DVDs and they have uh, all of these technological things. I actually went to one prison where... Uh, It was such lax. This was in Seagoville, Texas. It was a minimum security prison. And I went into one guy's place. He had a refrigerator, a television, all these things. And at night, the guy climbed over the wall and went and stayed with his family. He had a wife and kids. And then he'd climb back over the wall and get in his prison cell for the morning and stuff like this. This wasn't one of those kind of prisons. This was a hardcore prison. And because they said hold him fast, that meant that... Don't let this guy escape. Uh, in those days, people, if, if the prisoners escaped, well then the jailer who, they, who was supposed to be watching them when they escaped, they would kill the jailer for, for you know, them being gone. That's the reason that'll figure into this story right here. And so anyway, because of this, uh, this jailer put him in the dungeon in the lowest part of the prison, and, <clears throat> excuse me, put their feet and their hands in the stocks and made them secure. And so this is the situation. They were thrust into the inner prison and their feet and hands were fast in the stocks. And in verse 25, it says, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Now you got to remember, it says earlier here that they laid many stripes upon them. So their backs were laid open and bleeding And I'm sure that they were in an uncomfortable situation and yet they couldn't do anything to get relief. Their feet and their hands were in the stocks. This was an unbearable situation. You know, most people would be over there griping and complaining. Most people would be talking about how bad it was. And if somebody still was going to hold on to their faith in the Lord... I imagine most of us probably would have been, oh, God, do something. Oh, God, get me out of this. And we would have been doing something, asking for our deliverance. It all would have been focused on us and all on our situation. But look at this. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And I just want to emphasize, I started talking yesterday about how praise is strength. To still the enemy and the avenger. When you start praising God, it drives the devil mad. He retreats, he flees because he cannot tolerate God being worshiped. And so praise is a weapon against the devil, it stops the enemy, and I agree with that. That's true. But, now this is an amazing point, and I pray that you get this. Paul and Silas weren't only praising God as a weapon to get out of their situation, to get somehow or another deliverance or relief from this situation. And you can see that because when they praised God, God got to tapping His foot and when He did, an earthquake came and it opened up all of the prison cells. It made all of the chains and the bondages fall off of people. You can read that right here. We're going to read it in just a second. But when their deliverance came, Paul and Silas didn't leave. Here is a radical truth that I pray that you get. Paul and Silas didn't just praise God so that they could get out of their situation. They praised God because they actually loved God and were so focused upon God and upon all of His goodness that they were just worshiping Him. And when they were set free, they didn't leave. And not only did they not leave, but it says none of the prisoners left. Now this to me is as big a miracle as Paul and Silas in this miracle of the earthquake and their prison cells being opened. The fact that these people who were rapists, who were thieves, murderers, whatever it was that they were put in prison for, these people when they were set free didn't leave. That's amazing to me. And you know, part of it's right here in this 25th verse. It says, At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. This word heard, if you look it up in the Greek right here, it means they hung on every word. In other words, they didn't just hear them, but not pay any attention, and it didn't touch their heart. This praise and worship so touched these other people who were in these... You know, they were ungodly people that had stolen or done whatever it was and put in prison. And it so touched them that when they had the opportunity to go free, they didn't leave. Paul, later on, when the, when the jailer came in and he was going to kill himself, they said, don't do yourself any harm. We are all here. Not just Paul and Silas stayed, but all of these prisoners stayed. Not a one of them left. I can only imagine that what it was, they were in the presence of God. Paul and Silas were worshiping the Lord. And again, I refer to Psalms chapter 22, that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. They were worshiping God and there was such a manifest presence of God there that these prisoners were willing to stay there and stay in jail in the presence of God rather than get out of jail and leave that glory of God that was there. Well, that's powerful to me. Now, some people have trouble relating to this because we just don't have a lot of anointed praise and worship like that. So many of the churches I go into, it is uh, technically correct. The people who are singing have talent. The people who are playing the instruments have talent, but it's not that anointed. It, the presence and the anointing of God isn't always manifest. Many times it's more of a show, a performance than it is true worship of God. And so some people who may not have been in true worship may not be able to relate to this. But I've been in some times where, man, the presence of God is so manifest that you just... You can't stop. You don't want to stop. You don't know what to do. Man, there's been many times that I've fallen flat on my face in the presence of God, just worshiping God. If you've never been in that, you may not relate, but they were worshiping God And it touched these prisoners so much. They hung on every word so that when their prison cells were open, nobody left. So it goes on to say in this 26th verse, it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. You know, this is an amazing earthquake. It wasn't just something that happened. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't a physical, natural occurrence that just happened to happen at that time. No, this was supernatural in every way because it didn't bring destruction. It didn't kill anybody. All it did was open up the prison doors and it made everybody's chains fall off. This was a supernatural God-ordained earthquake. And in verse 27, it says, The keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. And again, this goes back to what I said earlier, that in the Roman system here, when you were given prisoners, you had to keep them. And if they escaped, they killed you for it. So he expected to be killed. He just supposed that all of the prisoners would flee when they got the chance. And so he was going to kill himself so that he wouldn't face the shame and the torment of the Romans doing it. But in verse 28, it says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Now again, Paul wasn't in a position where he could see this. This was by the Spirit of the Lord that he knew this. And he uh, called out to this jailer. You know, again, Paul could have been bitter. He could have been mad. How come this jailer is doing this to him, the Romans and stuff? And he could have wanted to see the jailer die. Instead, he reached out to him and showed love and compassion towards him. And in verse 29, it says, Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto Him the word of the Lord and to all that were in His house. And He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all His straight way. And when He had brought them into His house, He set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of His house. Man, this is a great example. But this is one of the examples in Scripture of what praise and worship towards God will do. It built Paul and Silas up. Here, they could have been focused on themselves. They could have been focused on their pain. They could have been focused on all of the terrible things. Did you know earlier in this chapter, God had appeared unto Paul in a dream, and he saw in a dream a man saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so he rose up knowing that God had sent him. And yet within just hours of being over in Macedonia in the city of Philippi. He had been beaten and condemned and thrown into prison. Did you know if that would have happened to most of us, we would have been questioning, man, did I really hear from God? If God did this, well, then how come it's wound up this way? I know this because I've done it myself. I've uh, I've had a lot of people come to our Bible college and I mean God spoke to them in supernatural ways and yet they get here and not everything's perfect. And instead of focused on what God said to them and, in, and keeping that in front of them, they focus on the problems. I'm thinking of one guy in particular who came to our Bible college, and it's a long story. I'd known him for many years, and I encouraged him that if God is telling you to come, then just come. And he struggled with it. And finally, he had God walk into a room where he was. I mean, Jesus walked in, and told him he was doing what Jesus told him to do. I've never seen a physical manifestation of Jesus. I've never heard an audible voice from Jesus. He speaks to me all the time, but it's in my heart. And this man had things happen to him that have never happened to me. And I mean, because of that, he came out here to school. But when he got here at school, he didn't see his job situation work out immediately. He was having to live with some other people. He was struggling financially And there was things happening. And anyway, this guy became so depressed. I'd go to school and see him. And he just looked like, I mean, his best friend had died. And he would just be grieving. And he was focused on all of the things that weren't going right. And there's a number of times I went to him and I said, but look, God spoke to you. God appeared to you. You heard an audible voice. You saw a visible manifestation. Why don't you focus on that? And when I would refocus his attention and get him back, he would be okay for a while, but then he'd get to looking at his circumstances and he'd get discouraged again. But see, Paul and Silas, they could have been saying, well, God, I thought you sent us out here, but look at what happened to me. Instead, Paul and Silas were were knowing that they were in the center of God's will. And just because something bad happened didn't mean that they had missed God. And they were just praising God. You can turn over to the book of Philippians, which was written about this exact time that he's describing right here. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Lord, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, being made conformable unto your, de- unto your death. And I hadn't got time to teach on this, but Paul knew that when people persecuted you, it's not you personally that they're persecuting, it's the Lord. Paul knew this because he was out persecuting Christians back when he was Saul before his conversion. And he went to Damascus and he had uh, in the middle of the day a light that was brighter than the noonday sun and it knocked him to to the ground off of his beast. And he heard an audible voice from God saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The Lord didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? God takes the persecution of His people very seriously, personally. And so Paul knew firsthand that he wasn't just persecuting people who believed in Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus. And now that he was on the other side and that he was the one who was proclaiming the gospel and he was being persecuted, he recognized that he was, he was uh, in a sense, being honored to be persecuted, he recognized that it was because Jesus in him. He was thinking on the fact that God, thank you, that I'm worthy to suffer shame for your name. That's what the disciples said when they were persecuted by the chief priests. They left the council after being beaten, uh, thanking God and and saying, "Thank you that we are worthy, counted worthy to suffer shame for your namesake." See, this is what Paul was doing. He wasn't looking at his pain. He wasn't thinking about his pain. He wasn't thinking about his resume and how this was going to affect it to be thrown into prison and to be beaten. He was thinking about Jesus. He was letting Jesus show him his acceptance. When Stephen, the very first martyr in the uh, Christian church, the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, when he was stoned to death, Saul was a part of that group that stood there and they laid their coats at his feet and he, he participated in and was in a green of the killing of Stephen. And Stephen, one of the reasons that he was able to endure this stoning... I mean, that's a terrible thing to have people pick up rocks and throw at you until they kill you. And one of the reasons he was able to do it is because he saw the heavens open and he saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Every scripture about the resurrected Jesus after our salvation shows Him seated at the Father's right hand like Hebrews chapter 10. But in this case, He was standing. And you know, this is just andiology, but I believe that Jesus stood up honoring the very first person who gave His life as a martyr for Him. And just think, if you could see the heavens open up and Jesus standing there and honoring you by standing in your honor, I guarantee you that would minister to me so much that it seems like all of these stones and rocks... Yeah, I'm not sure you'd even felt them. I'm not sure that Stephen even felt all of this. He was looking at the glory of God. He was seeing Jesus honor him. And because of it, it more than compensated for what he was going through in the physical. And you can see that same thing right here. Stephen, I mean, uh, Paul and Silas weren't focused on themselves and they weren't focused on the things that were wrong. They weren't griping and complaining. They were praising God, not praising God just to get out of a bad situation. I've seen people that will do that and they will go through the motions and outwardly it looks like they're praising God. But in their heart, there is no thankfulness. There is no praise. There's no worship. It's just they're, they're worshiping like a weapon. And even though it is a weapon and even though that is true that it works, it needs to come out of a pure heart. Paul and Silas were worshiping God, focused upon God because of it. God inhabited the praises of His people the, the people that were set free didn't leave. The jailer and his entire family got born again. I mean, they had a powerful revival, a miraculous encounter because of praise and worship. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we need to emulate this. We need to get to where I don't care what's going on in your life. Start praising God. Praise God that things are as good as they are. They could be worse Praise God that if things really are bad, that God can intervene. You know, just like the Hebrew children over in the book of Daniel, they said, we aren't, we aren't careful to answer you. Our God is able to save us, but if He doesn't save us, we still aren't going to bow. We're going to worship God. If we die in the fire, we'll go directly to be with Him. But God can deliver us, and because of that attitude... I mean, God supernaturally delivered them, threw them into this burning fiery furnace, and all it did was set them free from the bonds that had bound them. And Jesus was walking in the furnace with them. And it wound up being a powerful witness that caused the king and everybody else to worship the true and the living God. I mean, you aren't that bad of a situation, and yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worship God. Daniel was commanded to quit praying and worshiping God, and yet he opened up his window so that everybody could see him and prayed just exactly the way that he did before. He wasn't afraid of that. He was worshiping God. I tell you, we have so much to praise God for. Regardless of what your situation is, man, find the good. Praise God for the good. Begin to worship God. And I tell you, God comes and inhabits the praises of His people. It drives Satan mad. He just has to flee from you. Satan does not understand. He is 100% carnal. He just looks at things in the natural. He does not have spiritual understanding and perception. And when he hits you with sickness, when he hits you with poverty... When He is destroying your family and when everything is going good, I mean wrong, nothing is going good, everything's going wrong and yet you are praising God, Satan does not know how to cope with that. It just makes him flee from you. So praise God. We need to be praising God. We need to be thankful for all He's done for us. And as we worship the Lord, I guarantee you it is going to change your heart towards God but it'll also just drive the devil away from you. He cannot stand praise. And this is my own personal opinion. I believe it's accurate, but I think this is why we have the tradition of praising God when we come together and we start with praise and worship. Of course, the scripture says in Psalms 100 verse 4, it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. So we were admonished in scripture to do it. But I think that the reason that the Lord set this up is because when you come together, if you just came together and then people just started talking and somebody preaching or something like that, uh, it would have been easy for you to just transpose all of your problems of the day and stuff and start talking about them. But when you start praising God, it makes you lay aside all of these things and forget yourself and start praising God for who He is and for His goodness. It brings the supernatural manifestation of God's presence. I've quoted this scripture many times over in Psalms chapter 22 that God inhabits the praises of his people. So it affects your heart, it takes your attention off of the negative and start praising God. It draws the supernatural power of God. It drives away demons. Satan cannot stand praise. And so it's just powerful. It affects all three of these areas. It affects your heart, it affects the devil, It affects God and it prepares all of these things. And then when you come time to minister the word or to start praying for people, the whole atmosphere of everything has been changed. And so I believe that that's the reason that the church, of course they do it because we were instructed to do it in scripture, but I believe that that's the practical reason that God gave us that is because it affects you, it affects the devil, it affects God. And it is just the way that we are supposed to relate to God. I can't imagine having a relationship with God that isn't centered around praise. Just my own personal life, I couldn't tell you the exact percentage. I've never sat down and done this technically, but it seems to me that 90% or more of all of my prayer life and relationship with God is built around praise and thanksgiving. I mean, that's what it centers around. Stop and think about this. What did Adam and Eve have? What was their relationship with God like? I know some of you have never sat down and thought about this, but, you know, they didn't have anybody to intercede for. They didn't have to pray and ask God to save anybody. They didn't have to pray over the government and pray that, you know, righteousness would exalt a nation. They didn't have any needs to pray for. They didn't have to pray for their daily bread. God had created so much fruit and everything. I mean, it was just... It was such a superabundance. They didn't have to pray for their needs to be met. They didn't need any clothes. They didn't have cars. They didn't have houses. They didn't have anything that they needed. They didn't ask God for something and they didn't have to repent of sin before they had entered into eating of the forbidden fruit. They didn't have sin to repent of. They didn't have bad memories to repent of. They didn't have to get over their terrible childhood and being abused. I mean, what did Adam and Eve do to have a relationship with God? Think about that. And yet it says that God talked to him in the cool of the evening. What did they talk about? They weren't asking forgiveness, they weren't interceding, they weren't begging for something, they weren't rebuking. They didn't have the devil to bind. I believe that Adam and Eve basically were just fellowshipping with God. They were just saying thank you, saying, "Father, thank you for a beautiful sunrise, thank you for the sunset. Thank you for. I saw this tree today. I saw these animals. Thank you for just a beautiful world. I believe the Lord was probably asking them, what did you do, do today? And they were talking about where they went and what they did. And it was just praise. It was worship. It was thanksgiving and just talking about things. And you know what? I believe that, that our relationship with the Lord, if it was more like that, if it was more just fellowship with the Lord and thanking Him and loving Him, we wouldn't have as many problems. We wouldn't have to ask for as much. But the average person doesn't really commune with God and fellowship with God. What they do is they use God like a grocery cart to go down the aisles of heaven and say, give me this and give me this. And they're just constantly asking for stuff. And if that's what your relationship with God is about, that's one of the reasons that you have so many problems is because you don't use prayer to fellowship with God, to worship God, to bless Him and to minister unto Him. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I wanted to read these verses to you. And um, this is going to rattle some of you because, again, we have values that are so different than what are expressed in the Bible. And um, most people just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. But I want to let you or encourage you to think about this. This could radically change the way that you look at things. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. Now the wording here is Old English. It's not real straightforward to the way we would say things today. But what he's talking about here is slavery. And he's talking about people who are slaves to count their masters worthy of all honor. In other words, he's saying, don't be bitter because you're a slave, but honor your masters. And somebody would say, well, what if they were a Christian? And I'm a Christian and there is no... you know, Paul said that in Christ, there is neither bond nor slave. I mean, slave or free or bond or any of these kind of things. In other words, in Christ, all of this slavery is done away with. And people might say, well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't have slaves. You shouldn't own me. Look at the next verse. It says, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, let me say what I'm not saying. I've mentioned this before and I've had people who've been partners with me for a long time write in and say that I support slavery and I think we ought to have slaves. I am not saying that. And if you write in and try and tell me that and tell me that I'm promoting slavery, I'm not even going to honor your uh, letter by responding to it. That is just foolishness. I am not for slavery. I could turn to other scriptures and show you where it was forbidden and things like this. I am not promoting slavery, but here's the point I'm trying to get across. Paul lived in a day where slavery was the rule of the day. And how did he deal with it? This didn't mean that you were just to accept it, that you weren't supposed to pray that people would be delivered from this bondage. But Paul was telling these people that you still can be praising God. You still can show the love of God. You can pray for your masters. You can serve them. And he said, if you have a believing master, then instead of demanding that they let you go because you are both free in the Lord, instead, you should just serve them and give them even more honor. Now again, this is not saying that Paul wanted slavery, that I want slavery. I don't believe it's a godly thing. But what this is saying is that there's some things more important than just your physical freedom. And I know that this is going to really ruffle the feathers of people. But if you looked at things from God's standpoint, there are people who are slaves who are freer than people who aren't slaves. Or here's another comparison. I just saw this on television just recently. I turned on a Christian broadcast and there was a guy on there talking about how he had been in prison And in prison, he had the gospel shared with him, and he got born again. And I mean, this guy was just telling that he was freer than he had ever been in his life. He said he had to get put behind bars to find out what freedom is. And he was saying that he was happier and freer than he had ever been in his life. He had never known freedom like when he was in prison. Now, is this encouraging that everybody ought to go into prison to find freedom. No, you can find freedom without being in prison. But it is saying that whether you are in jail or out of jail, the most important thing is your personal relationship with God. And if you experience the freedom that is in Christ, it's the same as if you're free. And I've I've heard this not only from this guy on television, but I've had many people ride into me who got hold of the word through my teaching and they were just free, and they are happier than they have ever been in their life, even though they're locked up in prison. So this is the point that Paul's making. He is not promoting slavery. I'm not promoting slavery, but what he is saying is that you can still praise God. You can still operate in love. You can still worship God. In other words, slavery is not a reason for you to be defeated and beat down and oppressed. The book of Philemon, was written to Philemon who was a slave owner. He was a Christian and one of his slaves, Onesimus, had escaped and he made it all the way to Rome. And in Rome, he connected with Paul. Paul and Philemon were uh, friends. Paul had been in Philemon's home and Paul and Onesimus met each other in Rome. Paul shared with Onesimus and Onesimus got born again. And did you know Onesimus could have stayed in Rome and have stayed in freedom and yet Paul told him to go back to his master Philemon and submit himself and wrote the book of Philemon and sent it by the hands of a slave, a runaway slave and sent it back to his master. Now again, is this promoting slavery? No, I praise God that slavery is over. There was terrible things done under slavery. I am not for slavery, but I am saying that there are some things more important than whether you are slave or free, whether you're in prison or not in prison. And the most important thing is your personal relationship with the Lord. And so he says in verse 3, after saying these things about slavery, he says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, knowing nothing, But doting about question that word doting means an un uh, an unjust or an undue focus on these things. So they are focused on questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmising,s perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. Boy, these are some major statements right here. And again, this is not promoting slavery, but it's saying that if a person is putting freedom ahead of everything else, ahead of your personal relationship with God, ahead of what Jesus has done for you, then you are out of balance. You are focused on things. You are thinking that personal gain, you succeeding, you being prosperous is what it's all about. That's what he's talking about. Supposing that gain is godliness. And he says, From such withdraw yourself. Again, I am not promoting slavery. I am not promoting any of these negative things. I praise God for our freedom. But I am saying that our freedom and our liberty, our personal relationship with God far surpasses everything else. And see, if you got this attitude, then even if you're in a bad job, even if you're in a bad marriage... Even if you're in a bad neighborhood, if you're in under certain circumstances where you don't have the education and you could just use a million things to put into this context, you could still be praising God. You could still be loving God. And I tell you this history bears this out a hundred thousand times over. I've read stories about people who were slaves, who were freer than their descendants today who are free free in the natural, but bound spiritually, bound in their heart and in their emotions, bound to drugs and alcohol and bitterness and anger and an entitlement mentality and stuff like that. Again, am I saying that, for, that slavery is a good thing? No, but I am saying that there are things that are more important than your physical circumstances, the size of the house that you live in and all of this other stuff. And if you got this attitude that this is promoting, then even if you were in slavery, even if you were in poverty, even if you didn't have everything going, if your marriage wasn't working right, and on and on, you could still be praising God. And that's what it's talking about. Some people think that godliness is just getting as much as you can and then canning all you get and then sitting on your can and just accumulating everything you can get materially, emotionally, awards, all of these kind of things. This is saying that, man, you need to withdraw yourself from that. And then the next verse says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is the focus. Relationship with God is the focus. Did you know Adam and Eve didn't have fancy houses, clothes, cars, uh, jewelry, all of the stuff that we talk about today, and yet they were in paradise. They were in perfection. They were communing with God every day. And that's the way that God made us to be. According to Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, it says, For His pleasure everything was and is created. That means that the original purpose of Adam and Eve was for God's pleasure. And today, our reason for our existence is still for His pleasure. And that's what we need to be focused on. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But having just gain, having a nice house, all of these things without God, without being thankful, if you aren't thankful, if you aren't worshiping and praising God, you're missing what it's all about. I've met many people who were happier, happier, than people with all of these other advantages. And yet, in the natural, they just suffered. I remember this one couple that I went to in Cluj-Napoca, Transylvania, Romania. And this is back during the Berlin Wall when it was still up, when communism was ruling. And these people were the ones that had smuggled Bibles in. And the person who was my contact between me and them, they had never met each other. They just left notes out in the... Uh, forest, and they had drop spots, and they exchanged things, and they knew each other by code names. And then when the uh, Berlin Wall came down and Romania overthrew Ceausescu, they killed him. And for I went over there right after, the month after Ceausescu was killed, I was over there. And uh, I mean, it was just totally free. They didn't have any laws. The government had been overthrown, and nobody knew what you could or couldn't do. And it was amazing. And anyway, we brought 10,000 Bibles with us. And because of the change in the government, the guy who was my friend and the one who had been the contact with them, we met for the very first time. Prior to that, it had just been code names and, and things out in the forest. We met with them and we got to go into their house. And this couple had built their own home. It was nice. It wasn't you know, real fancy or anything by American standards, but it was nice. And the reason they built it is because Ceausescu had bugged everything. Everything that was built in Romania was bugged by him. And so to be able to escape this, they built their own house and did it themselves so that they could guarantee that there was no fiber optics or listening devices and all of these kind of things. And anyway, we went into their home and we got to visiting and uh, talking, and they had been very prominent. They were very well educated. They had both been professors in the uh, university, but when they became Christians, they got totally blackballed. They had their jobs taken away from them. They were demoted. They were put down to a very low-level thing. The man had been put in prison and had been beaten many times. They, uh, their daughter, they had a daughter that all of the Communist Party leaders had taken the daughter and made fun of her because her parents were a Christian, because she was a Christian, and they mocked her and beat her and did things like this. The government had taken away their rations. They weren't able to get gas. They had turned off their electricity during the winter, and in Romania, it gets cold. And they actually told us stories that they had ice an inch thick on the ceiling, the walls, the floor. They went through an entire winter with no heat, They actually took the battery out of their car since they couldn't get any gas. The Communist Party wouldn't allow them to have any gas rations because they were Christian. And they took the battery out of their car and used it to power one light bulb is all they had. And their daughter used that to study so that she could pass her grades in school. And they just had all of these terrible, terrible things going on. And it had been that way for decades. And the man who was the contact with him, he asked him. he says, why didn't you ever accept our offers to get out of Romania and to come to the United States? We had people that would have sponsored you and you could have gotten asylum in the United States. And he says, why didn't you ever take any of my offers? And I never will forget this woman. She said, you Americans. She says, you think we have to have a fancy house and heat and all of these kind of things. She says, why do I have to have that to be happy? She says, I'm happy right where I am. This is where I was born. These are my people. She says, if we left here, who is going to share with them about Jesus? And this woman was just so happy and so content. We brought them one slice of sausage and two uh, sticks of cheese And the woman broke down crying. That was over a year's worth of cheese and sausage that they got. And yet in all of these deplorable situations, she says, I'm happy. Why would I want to go anywhere else? She says, I am just totally satisfied, totally content. And I tell you, it was a real lesson to me. This is what this is saying. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world... And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Now, this doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to dream for something big in order to be able to affect other people and to be a blessing. But I'm saying that you should be content. You shouldn't be striving for increase because you have to have that to be happy. And I'm telling you, there's millions of people that your whole life, you are stretching yourself, you're working extra hours, you're doing all of these things... But it is not because you want to be a blessing. It's because you've got to have these things to be content. You just need to learn to be content with what you have. If you have food and raiment, be content. You know, I live in a house. I love where I live. If I had millions of dollars, I wouldn't live someplace else. But I built my house in 1988 for $60,000, which, you know, depending on where you are in the world, that may sound like a huge amount of money. But relative to everybody I know, nearly everybody I know has a house that's bigger than mine, better than mine. And I could now go get something better, but I'm content. We've customized that. I've got it exactly the way I want it. I don't have to live in a fancy place. I'm not against people who do. You can live wherever you want to. But I'm just saying, how many bathrooms do you have to have to take care of your business? How many beds can you sleep in at one time? You know what, sooner or later we need to find our contentment and the point I'm getting at through all of this is we just need to be thankful and praise God for what we have and quit all the time waiting and lusting for something else. Praise God that things are as good as they are.